Now, last week, we had a great study on the bountiful eye, looking at things uh, and seeing the opportunities of God uh, through all of the bountifulness that God has given to us in our lives, all the goodness that He's done for us, and how that the real blessings in our lives will come from taking what we have and recognizing what God has given us, and then giving that to others. That's where the real blessing is. You know, people think that the key to God is, the, is love, and that's not true. The real key to God is giving. God so loved the world that He gave. God is in a continual state of giving to His children and everything that they need. And we as Christians need to be in that continual mindset of giving to the things to others that God has given to us. And we looked at two great examples of this as, as a child of God, to uh, never miss the opportunities that God will put in our lives. How absolutely important uh, that is. The door of utterance we talked about in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. And the door of opportunity uh, that, uh, you know, that through our spiritual insight and our spiritual discernment, uh, we see and understand all those things that like 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 talks about. We look, first of all, at the book of Nehemiah. And we saw how that he was a man of God that was in the right place at the right time uh, to do what God wanted him to do. And uh, it was an incredible study and in how he saw uh, God orchestrating the opportunities to get the nation of Israel back to the land and how he was the key person that God used. And I, I want, I, you know, I, I emphasized that last week and, and in our introduction this morning, I want to emphasize it again. You do not know how important it is that you may be the key person that God wants to use in some situation. And, uh, you know, we saw how that he saw it and he seized the opportunity. Then we looked at Acts chapter 8 and feet Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch. And I showed you where that in the book of Nehemiah, we saw God orchestrating and putting everything together. But then in Acts chapter 8, we saw the other aspect to it, and that is how God gets uh, you to the right place to be the right man in the right time. And we showed that through the relationship that you have with the Holy Spirit of God. A totally, honestly, a totally complete foreign concept to most of God's people today. Not understanding what it means to have a working, talking, walking relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. We saw it with Philip. How that him and the Holy Spirit of God were in tune all day long, all the time, talking back and forth. That he was giving him the instructions of what he wanted him to do. And he was taking those instructions and doing it. You know, I said it Thursday night that many times we as Christians, we spend a lot of time studying the Bible. We come away knowing the Bible, but we never come away knowing the author of the Bible, the Holy Spirit of God. And it's his leading and opening and guiding us with the Word of God that really makes the difference. This is where we saw last week the great concept found in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, pray without ceasing. How we are to be constantly praying constantly in touch with the Holy Spirit of God. And, of course, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 talks about praying always with all prayer and supplication. And we looked last week what that really means and we talked about it. We saw the difference, uh, the, excuse me, the definition of the word I in the Bible. And I told you how that certain words in the Bible are going to trigger things that you want to study. They're, they're key. We're going to see another one today. And we saw how that 
uh, in the Bible a bountiful eye. And the Bible said in Matthew 6, verse 22 and 23, if the, your eye be full of light, then, you know, it's singleness of eye, and you're seeing God in everything that He wants. Bible says if your eye is full of darkness, then, you know, it's full of the world. And I showed you how that as Christians, uh, you can't have one eye filled with light and the other eye filled with darkness. It has to be a, sing- a great principle, singleness of, singleness of eye. And today, we're going to look at just one more verse. That's all we'll get through today. And uh, if there was ever any question as to uh, the Holy Spirit of God uh, leading where we go in the Bible and, and all the things that we deal with, it's, it's how that he puts the sermons together. When I study through the book of Proverbs, I, I, never, I never orchestrate sermons around circumstances or situation. I just let the flow of the Holy Spirit of God. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I'm just moving through the book of Proverbs. I've always wanted God to have the freedom here uh, to give us and to set the structure of preaching and to give us what we need. It's one of the things I like about Thursday night Bible study. Too many churches orchestrate too many things. And I like to have the freedom for God to do whatever we want to do, change up whatever we want to change up. Thursday night is a classical example of that. Thursday night is a time where in most Bible studies, you go in there, you have a set format. The God gives you what he wants to give you, what he thinks you need. And, uh, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. There certainly there isn't. But I like, the, I like the atmosphere of being able to let the Holy Spirit of God do whatever he wants to do. I think that you study the Word of God all week. You certainly get into the Bible, many of you, most of you. And I think to have a place where the Holy Spirit of God can bring us, all of us together, lift out those things that we can all can benefit from and where it isn't just me orchestrating what we want to talk about. I think that's, I think that's invaluable. I think that's a sign of a healthy church where you're not trying to control. Everything is being put out. You don't have your own agenda so much that the Holy Spirit of God can't change it. I've always told the Lord, no matter what I'm going to preach, getting ready to preach, or actually sometimes in the process of preaching, God has come down and threw what I call in a play from the bench that he wanted me to swift gears. And uh, I like that. I like that. I I like to come to the place where God knows he has the freedom here to do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it, and and I'm I'm okay with that. And... uh, you know, I want to talk about a verse today that uh, most pastors probably wouldn't want to preach on. It's not a popular subject, but I think it's an invaluable subject in the Bible. Paul said that he taught the whole counsel of God. We live in a world today where most Christians pick and choose what they want to believe out of the Bible. Uh, most, most churches pick and choose what they want to do with the Bible. I, I never felt that was a good situation to be in. I think that good or bad, uh, you know, uh, you have to preach all of the Bible. And I think that there are things that you have to say at times that benefit people. I I want you to learn and grow. I'm not under any illusion that within this group this morning and within our church are men and women who someday are going to be be heading up uh, great ministry someplace and doing some great things for the Lord, either pastoring your own church or, or, or whatever. And I want you to know everything about the ins and outs. I've tried to make myself available that, that, uh, that uh, through my experience, and I was thinking about this week. In a couple of years, it's 47 years today I have been in the ministry. In another three years, it's going to be 50 years. That is half a century. I got thinking about it this week, and I'm thinking, my goodness, where did the time fly? I remember when I was still at Camp Choff down there trying to figure out what God wanted me to do. And here it is almost 50 years later. 
of my life. And boy, if there's ever a time that you realize the great verses in the Bible, like in James, where it says, What is your life but a vapor that appeared for a little while, then fadeth away? It's looking back and seeing how fast the ministry went, how fast everything transpired. And, and hopefully in those 50 years, I, I was able to learn some things. And I want you to learn those things. I, I believe what Paul said when he said the same things that I have, you've heard of me. He says, I want to commit to faithful men. Paul realized that he had a responsibility, not just to preach the truth, but to learn from the things that he had went through and then pass them on to somebody else that's going to have to go through them. I try to do that with the Bible. I, you know, I, I, I try to make the Bible as easy for you as I know how to. I, 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 I spent most of that 50 years pouring through the Word of God. And I, I, I look at the value of that now, not only has what it has done for me, but now has the ability to be able to pass that on to you. But, but I just don't want to pass on all the good things to you. Because in the ministry and dealing with people, it isn't always good things. The ministry is one of the bittersweet paradoxes of life. There's great things in it, and then there's some bad things in it. You have people that you deal with, that you get the blessings of life from, that they make a life in the ministry a, a, one of the greatest blessings in the world, but then you have circumstances and situations that, that uh, are not too great. And every church has them. But I don't want to just always be a pastor who just gives you all the good things, because you know what? That's not being honest with you when some of you boys get out there, and some of you gals get out there at some point in your life, and all I ever gave you and prepared you was for all the fun things and the good things and the sweet things and the blessings, you're going to get, you're going to get run over with a bulldozer. So I'm going to preach today on a very negative verse. And I didn't pick this. I didn't wait all my, my ministry life for 50 years to get here on this day to preach this verse. I'm just walking through Proverbs. And I just happened to, it's just like, that when the music stopped, here's where I was today. (laughs) Proverbs chapter 22, verse 10. Let's have some fun with it today. Cast out the scorners, and contention shall go out. Yea, strife and reproach shall cease. Let's go to the Lord today, and uh, we'll get in it. Chris Piscano, would you ask God blessing on the message this morning? Thank you, Chris. You know, the verse will stand as absolute truth. And one of the great things about the Bible, when it says something, you know, a lot of people like things that the Bible says that they go along with. But when the Bible says things that we don't go along with, we have a tendency not to agree with it or not like it or not care for it. And I want you to know that God doesn't really care what you think about His Word. He doesn't care if you like it or not. It doesn't change the truth. And we live in a day and age today where people think if a majority of people think something is true, that that must be true. I had a guy say one time, well, you know what? Talking about the King James Bible. You know how many people in the world out there don't believe that? 
and, and, you, and you little bunch of guys over here want to believe that? Don't you know the whole Christian world don't believe, believe anything like that? Doesn't that bother you? And I said, it bothers me no more than in Noah's time. The whole world didn't believe it was going to rain, but eight people did. God's always been in the minority. And as the old Chinese proverb says, as a hundred million people believe a foolish thing, to still a foolish thing. <laughs> now I'm buttering you up and making you laugh because I'm going to slam dunk you here in just a minute. <clears throat> Most people don't like confrontation. Yeah, I don't. Most people don't like controversy. I wish in a Christian life, in a perfect world, we all got along. I, 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 just, I just think that would be wonderful. I think that in Christianity, and, and actually, if there's any place that it ought to be perfect, it ought to be in Christianity. But you know, the devil's not going to let that happen. He's just not. Uh, you know, if I didn't know that the church and Christianity and Bible believers was God's way any other way, I'd know by how the devil attacks it. Uh, Christianity is the only, only thing I ever met in life that gets attacked more by the people who are part of it than the people that are in the world. And it's an incredible thing. And I don't, I don't like it either, but, you know, it's just as much a part as pastoring and being in the ministry and working with people. And sooner or later, if you work with people, sooner or later, it's gonna, your number's going to come up, and sooner or later, you're going to have to deal with something negative. It's just that simple. And nobody likes it. And, you know, and I think that sooner or later, God's people are going to, in a church, when you're teaching or you're leading, or certainly if you're a pastor, you have to stand for something. And the problem is today that we live in a Christianity with a bunch of Christians who don't want to stand for anything. And in my mind, after all these years in the ministry, and I've, 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 I've hopefully learned some things of pastoring and doing the ministry. I hope so. As I look at that verse, I'm going to tell you right now, nobody can grasp that verse and understand it better than a Bible-believing pastor who is simply trying to do the work of God uh, that God has called him to do. And scattered through this country... Little lifeboats of truth in a sea of apostasy. Little islands or little pockets of truth in a, in a cesspool of Christianity. You're going to find guys out there. You go up to New York and you'll find old Pat Dean up there. And you'll find, uh, go to uh, Vermont, you'll find old Jim Lake. Go back to Canton, Ohio someplace, you'll find old John Tony. We talk about Mel Sabaco all the time. Most of you don't know that his, his uh, grandson, Chuck Sabaka, or nephew, Chef Sabaka, uh, started a church there in Canton. He's pastoring there. You got Mike Veach. You go down to Dr. Ruckman's church. Now that Dr. Ruckman's gone, you got Brother Donovan. You go a little farther up there in, in Florida, and you got Brother Peacock. You go up back to Ohio and Alliance out there, and you got, you got Joe Silvestri. A bunch of good guys who, who are, are doing what God called them to do. And I would tell you that every one of them would look at this verse and they understand this verse probably better than anybody. I know that no pastor will go through the ministry and building a church and not face issues like this. Mel didn't. Ruckman certainly didn't. J. Frank Norris certainly didn't. 
Bob Jones Sr. certainly did it. None of them did. And I haven't, and neither will you. I've seen the scorners of the ministry all my life. I've watched this verse play itself out in different scenarios all of my ministry, all of my life. And, you know, and within that time period of 45 some years, I've helped pastors. I can't even remember how many. I'd go to preach someplace and we'd have a four or five day meeting and about the second night he'd call me over and he'd say, hey, I really got to talk to you. And he was struggling with some issue just like this. Even today, I get calls from pastors, two right now that I'm trying to work through issues that they're, they're struggling with. And when we look at this verse, I just don't want to beat on everybody that, 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 that has been a scorner in the ministries or churches. Whoever. That's not my goal. But I want you to come away this morning understanding why things are the way they are sometimes. Last week in people ministry, I gave you a really, 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 really good uh, example in Jeremiah chapter 18. How that Jeremiah was the prophet that came to, uh, came to the nation of Israel. And he brought them the truth of God. And the nation of Israel is much like Christianity today. Nobody wanted to hear it. And he lays out the truth and tells them what God is going to do and where they're at with God. And then down uh, about four or five verses, they came back and they say, who does he think, paraphrase, who does he think he is? Why, let's smite him with the tongue and not give heed to any of his word. That was Israel's, that was Israel's mindset. You know, I've told you many times, and it's so true. I, I like the, in, in everything in life, it's just the way I have to do it. I have to break everything down to the lowest common denominator. I'm giving you the benefit of that in, in the Bible Institute. I'm taking a book that everybody thinks is complicated, and all I've done is taken that in my life, and I had to do it because of my lack of intelligence, is to break that book down so simple that I could get it. And I found that as dumb as I am, God blessed the Lord, gave me a bunch of dumb people just like me. So it's easy for you to get it too. And that's just the way it is. I have to look at everything. You talk about the complexity of history. My goodness. American history, if that wasn't complex enough, all the presidents we had, all the vice presidents we had, all of the wars that we've been involved in, all the social issues that we've had, all that. What, a, what an amazing uh, study that is. But then you, you expand it to world history. One of the most, you want to really a challenge, study English history. Study the kings and queens going all the way back. I mean, it's unbelievable. Where America's only been around a couple hundred years. England's been around since 1,900. With the Saxons and, the, and the, you know, the Normans, and they all got together, and it all, oh, it's incredible. European history, far, Chinese history, Japanese history. Oh, it's incredible. And you look at that and you think to yourself, man, how do I ever get a handle on all of this? And we waste so much time in all the minutiae of all the details. I'm going to tell you something. History, much like the Bible, is very simple. And I've told you this before. History is nothing more than understanding that God has a plan. And within that plan, God moved down through history, through nations, through people, through kings, through queens, through everything in life to accomplish that plan. And the devil, through countries, kings, queens, and everything else, moves in opposition to stop it. You take that simple little format and look at all history, poof, 
it becomes so simple. And it's an incredible concept. God moves to do a work, and the devil moves to stop that work. In the Old Testament, the devil attacked the nation of Israel through other nations. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, God, the devil attacked the church. It's the same principle. The same thing will take place. When a man, any man, any man in this country starts to do a work for God, and God puts it in his heart to do that work, and God calls him to do it, the moment he starts to do that work, just like the moment God sent Israel and called him out of the Ur of Chaldees with Abraham, the devil will start to put circumstances in their life to stop them. And this is where our verse is at today. You, uh, you know, uh, and you see it in the book of Ezra chapter 4 verse 1. And what a great, what a great study that is. We saw last week how Nehemiah went into the king and they got to go back. And Ezra, this is where they go back. And Ezra goes back in Ezra 4.1 and they begin to build the city of God. Just like God will put in your heart as a young man to go build a church. Like he put in my heart to build a church. And immediately, once they start to do that work that God has called them to do, Bible says in 4.1, the adversaries show up. Now, when the adversaries show up, they don't try to, they don't come at them full force and try to burn the church down and kill everybody in it. No, they say, let us work with you. And when then you go through the story, you know what the Bible says those adversaries do? They weaken their hands in building. There will be people in your church, in every church, that come into the church who look like you, smell like you, talk like you, but in time the purpose is, not to build the church, but to weaken the hands of those who are building it. Fact of life. I, I wish it wasn't true. I wish that everybody that ever went to church and got saved just lived their life for God and everybody just got along happily like we'll get in heaven. But it isn't going to work that way. And the Bible says, cast out the scorner and t- contention will go out. Yea, strife and reproach shall cease. You remember when we started our church uh, a number of years ago now, I had a plan in mind and a design of, of taking the core people that God gave us, knowing that 15, 20 years later, where we're at now, you people would be the, the core substance to work with me in building. And we've added a lot of people to that core over the years. But I wanted you to have, and also, it's on the website, I wanted... I wanted it to be. Uh, uh, I wanted it to be a documented for future generations. I got a letter. I, I like this. I got a letter from a gal this week in Michigan who sent some Bible questions that, uh, to us, and she says, "I." She says, "I just can't get enough of your website." She says, "I." I love this. She coined a phrase. I really enjoy your air ministry. I, thought, I had to think for a minute. I thought she saw, saw me play basketball at one time. But you should have saw me. You didn't want to see me, Foots? That's okay. <laughs> and, and, I, and I thought to myself, wow. I wanted it to be for you core people, but I wanted it to be for the generations to come. The pastors out there who are struggling to try to build churches. Gleaning from, as I glean from other men who did it. And that's really how you learn. You get into your Bible, God calls you, but then God will, will put uh, people in your world who know how to do it, who understand how to do it. And I told you 
than any good Bible-believing church, you'll have, you'll have what you find in Ezra here, chapter 1 and 2 and 3, all coming down through here. Uh, you'll find you have nine gates. You find them in Nehemiah chapter 3. Nine gates. What they did was, the, the, the city's in a, in a mess. City being a picture of the church. And the wall was completely destroyed. The wall being a picture of the Bible truth and the Bible doctrine that you build, as the Bible says, uh, line upon line, precept upon precept, one block at a time. And so it's a great picture of a church, the city, the city of God, the church of God, city of God in the Old Testament, church of God in the New Testament, in a spiritual sense. And the wall is what protects the city, just like the Bible doctrine we teach you protects this church. But if you just build up a wall around the city, nobody can get in and nobody can get out. So within that wall, there were nine gates. And those nine gates are a way that people can get into that city. And I told you back then, it's a picture of the nine gates of this church where people can come in. And the first one there in verse 1 is the, is the sheep gate. And I remember telling you, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I remember telling you that the first thing this church needs to understand is sacrifice. What it's going to take to build a work of God, hands down, is for everybody involved to understand the concept of sacrifice. Not giving to God in your own life, in your finances, and whatever you got. Not giving to God what's left over after you get it all. But giving to God what is sacrificed to Him based on what He's done for you. The second gate in verse 3 was the fish gate. We talked about winning people to Christ. That's your gate. Winning people to Christ. Going out and telling their story. You go out and tell people of Christ. Many of you came into this church through the fish gate. The third gate in verse 6 was the old gate. How much time I've spent helping you understand your roots of church history, where you got your Bible from, where you came from, why we're called Baptists, why we'll never take Baptist off our name. The fourth gate was the valley gate in verse, uh, uh, verse, 13, uh, verse 13. And the valley gate was, uh, verse 3, excuse me, the valley gate was where we work in the people ministry, people in the valley, going down through a tough time, us reaching out to them. How many of you came into this church through that valley gate? Struggles in your life. The fifth one was the fountain gate, verse 15. And that, of course, is our fellowship together. Our fellowship together is based on our fellowship with the Word of God, 1 John chapter 1. It's our fellowship, drinking at the fountain of the Word of God, bubbling up in our fellowship around that. The sixth one was the water gate. We had to jump over to chapter 8 for that one. And the water gate obviously is a picture of, uh, uh, of the preaching of the Word of God. The Bible says that Ezra made a pulpit of wood. And he preached to the people off of that pulpit. If you go to most uh, uh, Protestant churches, uh, you're going to find that the pulpit is either over to the left or over to the right. Uh, but when you go to a Baptist church, and you find other churches, but it started with a Baptist church, the pulpit's all in the middle. And the pulpit's all in the middle because Baptists wanted to make sure that everybody understood that the central focus of what they were doing was the Word of God being preached. Now, pulpit may be still in the middle, but we've lost that concept a lot. And that's our preaching ministry. Pulpit of wood, verse 4. And in that, just to throw it out to you, there was five goals that the preaching of the water gate accomplished. First of all, in 8.1, it talked about bringing a unity. There was no division. The next thing was the attention to the book. People were paying attention to the Word of God. 
Uh, the next thing was they had a respect to the Word of God. The next one is that they read it and they helped others who couldn't figure it out understand it. And the last one, the preaching of the Word of God was designed to help them fall in love with the Word of God. Exactly what we do here. The seventh and the eighth gate, found in 28 and 29, was the eastern gate and the horse gate. And we know that represents the second coming of Christ. He comes back on a white horse, Revelation 19, and Ezekiel chapter 44, uh, he comes in through the eastern gate. And a double emphasis on that because that is the theme of the Bible and the most important. Well, we got one more gate left. And that will be found in verse 14. Number nine will be the dung gate. Now, the dung gate is different than all the other gates because the dung gate, people didn't come in. It's where they went out. That's where they took out the trash. And, you know, I don't mean to be crude today, and I'm certainly not intended to be. Uh, I'm very polished in everything that I do, and I know what fork to eat first and all that stuff. If you have me over, you don't have to worry about me embarrassing you. I won't blow my nose in a Kleenex and put it next to my food plate or yours. I get that. I learned my lesson that from you, remember? I never forgot that. I never forgot that. Oh, thank you very much. Did I, did I apologize afterwards? I don't usually do that because John Wayne said apologize is a sign of weakness. <laughs> and, I, and it's a thing where, you know, I, I, the body, the human body, is a marvelous design. I mean, uh, and probably nobody understands that better than Doc back here. He studied it all his life, and he knows the anatomy. He knows what makes work work. I don't really know it. I just know it's pretty amazing. And uh, it's a thing where, but within the, our physical body, that God designed and God made, he had to have a process for us to eliminate waste. So within this marvelous body that we have, there is a natural process for it to eliminate the things that it has to get rid of in the body. And we accept that, and we thank God for that, and, and we, we, we appreciate the fact that the amazing human body that God created and how all of it works and how that particular aspect fits right in with life. But then somehow we think that in the body of Christ, there wouldn't be a process of elimination too. So God gave us a dung gate. Dung gate wasn't where people came in, it's where some, some things went out. And it's a thing where, you know, I, 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 I don't want to focus on that. And like I said, this is not a, a, I want you to understand today. This is my only goal. I want you to understand why and how things happen in the church. This is, not a, this is not a criticism of anybody. This is not, I have nobody in mind. This is not some message to beat somebody up. It, it, it has nothing to do with any of that. It just, I'm just walking through Proverbs. Now, how many of you actually, honestly, would like me a priest on the bountiful eye and then just skip this verse? Anybody? I preach it all, whole counsel of God, everything about it, everything, the good, bad, and yes, some of you are ugly. <laughs> now, I want to show you how this all really works so you can better understand when you're faced with it, because you will be. I, my plan for most of you, all of you, I don't know that all of you will ever get there, but my plan for all of you is to someday be holding and doing the work with the Word of God in people's lives. That's my goal. That's God's goal for you. 
He wants you to, through a bountiful eye, take what He has given you and all that you have and the blessings and then give them to somebody who doesn't have it. So I want you to understand how it works because sooner or later, you're going to get it. Now, I'd like to show you how all this really works. So, as I said, you can better understand. Our key verse here that I want to look at, I want to go back to Psalms chapter 1. And I want you to ask yourself a question while you're turning there. How does a child of God who is truly saved, on their way to heaven, get to the place where they're so negative about everything with God and the Word of God and the Church of God and the people of God, that they become the most miserable people on the world and wind up scorning everything that God actually gave them in salvation. You go over to the book of Ephesians where God started the church and he says and he gave gifts unto men. You ought to look and see what those gifts are that he gave you. You know what they are? They're the same things you get to the place that you scorn in your life. How does that happen? I, I, don't know if that, 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 I don't know if that bothers you, but I wonder about things like that. But I got the answer. I'm going to show it to you. Couple of things here. First of all, I want you to see the progression of becoming a scorner. I want to show you to show you the minister ministry of scornship. How to develop a pattern to be a scorner. Where does it all start? Well, it starts by hanging out with the wrong crowd. That's where it officially starts. But then let's look through the process. It says, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate day and night. Now that's a really good definitive verse on a scorner. Shows you their motive, so to speak. And as I said, the first thing you see is the fact that they quit walking with God. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. So this guy, at one time, whoever he was, walked with God, and then it came to a point where he quit walking with God. He started hanging out with the wrong crowd. Let's see what happens. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the first thing, counsel the ungodly. Now, once he quits walking with God, now he starts listening to somebody else. He starts not taking his counsel from the messages or from the preacher or from the discipler or from uh, the person that God has put in his life. Now they start taking counsel of the ungodly. And then based on the verse, once he starts taking the counsel of the ungodly, then he starts standing in the way of the sinners. And then... If that wasn't enough, here comes the progression. Now then he's seated in the seat of the scornful. So he goes through a process of quit walking with God, walking with the wrong crowd, taking the counsel of the ungodly while he's walking. Then he's standing with the sinners, and pretty soon he's sitting with them, and you can't tell them apart. That's the process. Now, most important thing I want you to see here is a scorner. Here comes another key word for you. A scorner in the Bible will always be equated with a seat. A seat. Have a seat. That's a key word in the Bible. 
sheet in the Bible will always be associated with authority and power. In Exodus chapter 25, when you want to talk about God's authority and power and forgiveness, we had a mercy sheet. When you and I end us life and wind up uh, with before God's final authority and power, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to wind up at the judgment seat. Jesus was talking to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 26, verse 6, and he talked about how that they wanted to sit in Moses' seat. And the ultimate power and authority is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is seated at the right hand of God. And here you got somebody that went through a process to quit walking with God. That means, well, define that for you. That means they quit growing. And when they quit growing, they quit listening. Those two always go together. Once you quit growing, you will quit listening. And then you start listening to somebody else as you're walking with them. And then pretty soon you're standing with them. And then after a while, you're sitting right in the middle of them and you can't tell you from them. When we talk about the United States, and uh, you know that all presidents are called president. I mean, if you introduce Clinton, he would say President Clinton. He's not president anymore, but he's President Clinton. Obama would be, would be who, John? President Obama, right. R- really glad you're under control this morning with that. <laughs> Whatever president, if he's not in office, when you introduce him, he's still president. But when you talk about Trump, when you talk about Trump, he's called a seated president. Why? He's sitting in the seat of, he's sitting in the seat of authority. And a, a sitting in the Bible or a seat in the Bible will always be a key word to show you authority of something. And the scorner who, who goes against that, the scorner who goes completely against that is someone who is a going against the authority that has been set up. They're rebelling against that seated, seating authority of the Word of God. And you, you, you begin to see how this thing works and be how it all plays out. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 2, the devil said, I am a God and I sit in the seat of God. He wanted that authority. And that is a great verse because it shows you that to get that seat, he had to rebel against God's authority. And a scorner will always be somebody who fundamentally, bottom line, is rebelling against God's authority. See how easy that was? That's it. So based on our infallible book of definitions, we see that the root of a scorner against God, against his church, against the pastor, against other people, whoever, anything that God is trying to do, will go back and deal with the fact that he's rebelling against the authority that he doesn't like. Every pastor in every Bible-believing church will be acquainted with what we lovingly call the sins of the saints. Garden variety problems that God people get into. Nothing, don't murder anybody, but you know what they are. Sowing discord, gossip, chronic griping, church belly aching. They'll have the spiritual giants who have all the answers, yet uh, their own life is a disaster. You have the drama kings and the drama queens, that everything in life is of Shakespearean play. Uh, it's 
It's unbelievable. People who fake spirituality really well, but inside they're fake and phony as a $3 bill. And good Bible hard preaching will always bring it to the surface. This is where the problem starts. Most guys, most people like this, they want to go to churches where there is no preaching or huge churches where there is no accountability. If you miss a couple of weeks here, somebody's saying, hey, where were you, Sunday? We missed you. And I can always tell when, when you when you're quit listening and you quit walking because of your answer. Hey, haven't seen you for a couple of weeks. Where were you? Well, I wasn't here. <laughs> wow, aren't you master of the obvious? Where were you? I wasn't here. And my response to that always needs to be, well, you know what? God's going to kill you if you don't get your life right out. But, but you can't say that. But I'm telling you, you can tell. There's a little song that kids always say. You know, most of the little kids' songs are more impactful than some of the big songs they have today. But you can always tell. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart. Down in my heart, I got the joy, 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 joy. No, you don't. No, you don't. I don't know what you got in your heart, but you lost the joy, 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 joy when you give me an answer who I am concerned and I love you and want to care about you. Where you been? I haven't seen you. I wasn't there. Bam! Now you're not there either. You're lucky, the Bible says, for a pastor, not a striker. And good hard preaching always, always brings it to the surface. Uh, you know, in World War II, when submarines were a real menace, I think the U-boats, I mean, in the first, they called it the happy time, like 39 to 40, maybe 41. They were sinking more tonnage. They were coming right off the coast of the United States and sinking ships that you could see Boston, all the East Coast was in sight with the lights on. And they were sinking ships up one side and down the other. Thousands and thousands and thousands of times. They were called wolf packs. And America was unprepared for them. And there's nothing worse on this planet than somebody, you're going across the ocean and somebody's in a submarine going to torpedo you. But America caught up to it and after a while they, they figured out how to bring them to the surface. And they would have depth charges on these ships and they would sue Sharnar, they would get the pings where the ships were at and they would... Go over them and dump these depth charge down. And boy, you be in a submarine and a depth charge go off, the concussion and, and against that shell. I mean, it, you know what it always did? It always brought them to the surface. And preaching's a lot like that. You like to hide down there in the depths, but boy, when them principles come down, bam! You'll come to the surface. You'll come to the surface. That's what preaching does, that's what it's designed to do. The preaching is designed to do one of two things, kill you or cure you. And you get to choose. This is just insight into the ministry. In every case I've seen or dealt with or helped a pastor with. I mean, come on. It's easy to criticize a pastor someplace that you don't like what he does, but you've never built a church yourself. I used to go to the gym. Well, I still do, but there ain't anybody there anymore. Once I got there, they all left. But anyway... Monday morning was always a great time because the Chiefs always played on Sunday and always lost. Amen. So, 
all these Monday morning quarterbacks. You never heard them in a locker room. Yeah, they need to get rid of that quarterback. Yeah, that coach, he needs to go. And they would go on and on and on and on. And I would just do my thing, but I would think, you're kidding me, right? I mean, here's a guy over here who just got out of the shower. He looks like the Goodyear blimp. He hadn't seen his toes in 30 years. If you snapped the ball and gave him the ball, he wouldn't run 10 feet before he fell down. But he's an expert on why the Chiefs lost. He says, oh, that quarterback, throw him a ball. You know what? That quarterback can throw that ball. If he hits you in the head, it'll kill you. <laughs> throw him the ball and let him. He, he wouldn't. He'd be dead in 15 seconds. It's easy to criticize people when you don't have to do their job. Somebody says, ah, oh, that's easy. Really? I saw a guy walk from... The, before the Twin Towers went down, a guy walked a tightrope between two Twin Towers. Remember that? Had a guy said, oh, anybody could do that. Really? Here, big guy, do it. Wear a parachute. You're going to need one. It's easy to criticize people. I mean, that's just what we do. We don't like something. We don't understand it. So we criticize it. If you had to do it, you probably would do the exact same thing the guy you're criticizing is doing if you understood it. But because you never did it, because you've never been part of it, because you never had to deal with it, you're an expert. <laughs> yeah, you're an expert, all right. Uh, and in every case I've seen or helped a pastor with, the issue of scorners will always go down just to a couple of people. Always does. It always does. And these folks are always, they always follow the same pattern, you know. A church of 500, 600, 700, 800. The whole church is wrong, and I'm right. You're kidding me, right? I mean, is your insanity catching? The whole church is wrong. I mean, they've been here for 30, 40 years, and, and, and a pastor preached the Word of God all of his life and, and built a church and supports missions and does this and does that, and now you have the insight from God, and all 800 people are wrong, and you got the truth, Right? Zach, I wish you were sitting over here. You always held that football just right when I was kicking it through the goalpost of life. I don't want to break your finger. So me and the pastor sat down. We began to peel back this thing, and he began to look at it and put all the principles to it. It just came down to his church of six or 700 people. I forget. To four people. Four of the most self-righteous, puffed up, egotistical, self-serving folks you'd ever want to meet. And, you know, and, and, and as I, we, we talked about it, and these four people did more damage in his church than all the booze and the drugs in town. And when the pastor and the deacons finally booted them, it brought a peace and unity to that church. It, it always does. Hey, if you know Joshua chapter 7 and the sins of Achan, you know that one man affected a whole nation and lost the power of God and God couldn't do anything with them. You get just one or two people in a church who are scorners and it will stop what God is doing. And every church situation I've been in uh, and every situation I've heard of and tried to help them with, hey, let me tell you something. And, uh, and I've been through a few of them. When that bunch of puffed up, self-inflated, self-called spiritual uh, giants uh, got uh, left and got booted out, there was an increase in the attendance, there was an increase in the offering, and there was a peace in that church that was unbelievable. He wrote me later, he says, you wouldn't believe the difference. 
You know, problems in churches. Now, if you don't hear anything else I say, some of you young guys that are down the line, hear this. Problems in churches are a lot like problems in your life. The problems in your life, you have two choices. You can get closer to God and pull closer to Him, or you can pull away from Him. And problems in churches will either pull the church together or it will pull it apart. It goes back to the fundamental spiritual depth of the people in the church. What they really understand, they're there for. This guy had a great church, and boy, they rallied around it. And Proverbs 22.10 says, Cast out the scorners, and contention will go out. Yea, strife and reproach shall cease. The dung gate. The dung gate. Now, I, I, I say this all the time, and I, and I believe this with all of my heart. I know there's pastors out there. I get it. There's pastors out there that believe that uh, they got the only church in the world and uh, you can't ever leave this church. And if you do, you're not spiritually right with God and all that stuff. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Let me tell you something. No church is for everybody. But you just need to be honest about it. You go to a church, you don't. If I went to a church someplace and I didn't like it and the guy said, hey, are you going to come back? And they say, no, I don't think so. This is not what I'm looking for. I wouldn't join the church, pretend I did, and then cut the legs out from the guy behind him. I wouldn't do that. That's a difference between character and lack of character. I mean, it, 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 you just, that's what it is. And it's an absolute truth, all the way through the Bible. Look at the Old Testament. When the Jezebels and the Micahs and the Achans and the Tobias and the Gershom, the Abraite go out, the blessings of God came in. It's just the way it is. And from my experience, you find, it, you find scorners that we're talking about here in two basic areas of Christianity. I've watched this for 50 years. And you can see it coming long before it gets to you if you know what to look for. Nothing you can do about it. You try to sandbag everything as best you can so the collateral damage isn't too bad, but there's nothing you can do. You can't go up to somebody before they do something stupid and say, God told me you're a scorner. But there's some things, patterns in people. In the Bible, there's 51 patterns. I told you this the other day, I didn't give you the number. There's 51 patterns of human nature in the Bible. 51 patterns. You learn those 51 patterns and you operate by those 51 patterns, you're going to have spiritual insight. And God puts those in there so you as a minister or a pastor or whatever can see long range so you don't get sandbagged. And a scorner has a pattern of, of, an, of self-righteousness, rebellion to authority. Many times they have an unteachable spirit. Padba has a pattern for establishing everything in the Bible. That's why I'm so big on teaching you the patterns, the models. They, they form the basis for everything that we do. You want to get the right model or pattern? There it is. And the first group you'll find will always be young Christians. And I need to say this. The percentage of young Christians that are like this, very small. Maybe one in 200 on a course of time. But there'll be young men and young women who are not grounded in the Word of God. They have what the Romans chapter 10 verse 2 says, they have a zeal but not according to knowledge. 
Paul said about people like this, you don't give them a lot of responsibility to prove themselves. He was telling Timothy over there in, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 5 and 7, he was talking about being a deacon and people wanting to be a deacon or want to be a pastor and all those things. And he says, that's a great calling. But he, he says, but if a man knows not how to rule his own house, how should they take care of the house of God? He's saying, if you can't handle your own family, you ain't got no business handling the family of God. Then he says in verse 6, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So the second thing he says is, no new Christian. You don't take a new Christian and make him a deacon. You don't take a new Christian and put him in charge of a ministry. Now, I got to tell you, I have made that mistake in my life, or I got burned every time. But you learn. You learn. He says, not a novice. This is why the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, when it comes to, you prove all things. You prove all things. He says, moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and into the snare of the devil. In other words, people have to see you do things. They have to watch the progression of God in your life. There are people in this church that if I put, give you something to do, everybody in this church would say, that was a great call. If I put somebody else in charge, they look at me and say, what is wrong with you? And they'd probably be right. Prove all things. You know, in the military, when you come out of basic, they don't make you a sergeant. They don't make you a general. They don't make you an officer, captain, lieutenant. When you come out of basic in the army, you're a Buck private. If you did some good things, you got to be a PFC, praying for a civilian. <laughs> but, they, but they never make you any rank. Because in the military, like Christianity, moving up the chain of command and getting rank is based on two things, time and grade. The longer you're in, the more you understand, the more valuable you are, the higher grade you get. They don't just take you and say, okay, you're basic now. You know the basic things. We're going to make you a sergeant and give you a platoon. We're going to give you a rifle company. We're going to give you a battalion of 600 men. We're going to do this. They won't do that. You'll have to go through a process of time, and through the time, you get the grade. And a Christian, it's the same thing. You want to be a discipler? You want to take a prayer group? You want to do this and you want to do that? And I, I'll say this. I'm impressed out of my mind about all the new people that took a prayer group this time. Every one of you did exactly what I would have wanted you to do, and I hope next time we get a bunch more. And I love the fact that you older ones are just step back in and let them do it and helping them. But you know how you got to the point? You got to that point through time and grade. You spent your time, you got into the book, you grew, you got to know what's going on, and now you're in charge of that or you're in charge of this. Now you can be trusted. Now you can be trusted. I know you get burned every once in a while, but you know what? That's just the way it is. People like this have a tendency to pick some spiritual doctrine and it becomes their hobby horse and they ride it all through Christianity. And they all have an unteachable spirit. Every one of them in my life that I've ever had have always been unteachable. They will develop a false sense of spirituality that in reality has nothing to do with the Bible and uh, they don't know anything about the Bible at all. I, I just jotted down five of the danger areas that I, the uh, first one is spiritual gifts. Boy, that's a killer. 
Spiritual gifts are defined for you in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. They are the three definitive chapters of spiritual gifts. I never met a guru of spiritual gifts who could ever lay out 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 with a gun to his head. But yet, oh, yes, I, 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 I'm the discerner of spiritual gifts. You have this spiritual gift, and you have this one. I myself, I have the spiritual gift of humility. No, you had the spiritual gift of humility. The second one is a big one, soul winning. Now, we try to keep soul winning as a balance here, biblical, you know, and uh, we, uh, we, we realize that that just happens through the process of our intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. But you've got some people that they just like to notch their pistols, like a guy in a gunfight shoots somebody, they knock their spiritual pistol with everybody they won to Christ. To them, how many people you went into Christ is a, some kind of monument to your spirituality. Of course, that's just not true. I get it. Winning people to Christ is vital. I understand that. We got a fish gate. I get it. But it comes at a place where they become a Pharisee about it. And they will ask you, how many people did you win to Christ this week? And when you say, well, I didn't win anybody, they'll say, well, I won two. Now, the inference of that is you're not as spiritual as I am. And I always say, yeah, but you're two. I saw them out drinking right after you got them saved. They really didn't get saved. Bring them down a couple notches. The third one is a big one is dress. How you dress. What you wear. There are some churches that if you, women, you would be, most of you women today would be ungodly and on your way to hell. Not to saying that you aren't, but it isn't because of the fact of what you got on. No slacks. I watched this guy on YouTube one time, and he went on and on and on and on and on and on. Let me tell you how stupid people are. I know, you don't like the word stupid, but life is tough. Tougher when you're stupid. This guy was going on and on and on and on and on about women wearing slacks, how ungodly it was. And he was using the verse in the Old Testament that says that a woman should not wear that which pertaineth to a man. Now, he had no idea that the verse in the context back there was dealing with lesbianism and homosexuality, but that's way beyond his pay grade. This guy probably thinks apostles and epistles are husband and wives, and I wasn't going to ruin his day. <laughs> and I'm sitting there listening, and the only people dumber than him were the people listening to him that were believing. You should have heard the amens. I'm thinking to myself, the verse says, it's an abomination for a woman to wear that what pertained to a man. And he's building this whole case on that. And I'm thinking to myself, now, in the Old Testament, every man wore a short skirt. <laughs> so, ladies, if you're here this morning and you have a dress on, you're wearing what pertains to a man, according to the Bible. <laughs> See how stupid that is? But this is where they go with it. Uh, you know, I've had, and I don't fight it, I've had pastors that, that, that think that, uh, you know, that, that, you know, you preach in the pulpit, you have to wear a suit and tie. I wore a suit and tie preaching for, for years and years and years. Just the most uncomfortable thing in the world. The way I preach, or used to preach, I would sweat through a suit so bad that you could see, I mean, it was just sweats. I, I had to throw a suit away what my month. I, it, 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 and I don't have a problem. Hey, I've been to preachers. I've been to places. I've been places where the guy, I know the guy requires, and when I go to preach there, I wear a suit and tie. I do. I don't care. It doesn't matter. What bothers me is when somebody makes that a spiritual deal. Like me encasing my flesh in a suit and tie will make me more spiritual. You're out of your mind. 
Paul said this flesh is no good thing. If you really wanted to preach honestly, you had to preach naked. <laughs> Jeremiah did. I mean, come on. Then it's one of those things where, you know, nothing hidden and you just put it out to them. <laughs> Probably not a very good idea, but anyway. I had a pastor friend one time. I loved the guy. One of my best friends in the ministry. I loved it. I preached at his church one time, a couple of times. He had me in for two weeks, taught me, had me teach his, all of his guys about ministry. But they were the most messed up people on the planet when it came to the practical things. I mean, they, they, they were legalistic. They were everything. He asked me in front of his whole staff. He says, tell us how we can win more people to Christ. And I said, you got a beautiful church. How many acres of parking lots that you have here? He says, we have 40 acres of parking. I said, great. Here's how you win more people to Christ than what you're doing right now. Turn your parking lot of your church into a used car lot. Make all your pastors car salesmen. Everybody that comes and buys a car, give them a really good deal, give them a track, and try to win them to Christ. Because you'll have a better chance of winning them to Christ that way than doing what you're doing. Having people can't come to your church and deacons at the door telling them they got to leave because they're not dressed right? Now, I love this guy. This guy was a great guy. He wore a suit everywhere. I was with him one time. We were driving together, and I said, brother, I got to ask you. We're buddies. I mean, and he, I, I, I said, I got to ask you a question. I said, I have heard this. He said, you know, I said, you know I don't care. You know we're buddies. And he said, I know, Bob. He said, go ahead and ask me. I said, I heard. And I said, I know you wear a suit and tie for everything. And he said, yeah, I do. And I said, I heard that you and a bunch of pastors went skiing out in Colorado. And under your ski suit, you wore a shirt and tie and pants. <laughs> it got real quiet. And he says, yeah. He says, I'm as boring as puke, Bob. I really am. He says, yeah, that, that, that's true. I'm thinking to myself, you've got to be kidding me. But that's where, that's where it's at today. And then the, the next one is the Bible. Now, we believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. Absolutely. I would die for it. I would defend it. I'd stand for it. I'd do anything or do it. I'd preach it. i believe it. But I'm not calling my church a King James Bible church. When somebody comes to this church and they have an NIV or whatever, you know what I do? And they come up, I have had them come up to me and they said, hey, I've got a, I'm here in your church today and I know you believe the King James Bible, but I have an NIV. And I know what I say to them? I say, you know what? You just use that. That's fine. Don't you, don't you let anybody take that from you. If you ever change Bibles, you make sure that God shows it to you and not some man. And let it go. Let us be in here. I feel the spirit of Satan coming down on me. No, you just can't preach to start with. See, it isn't an issue with me. There's some guys, it's an issue wherever they go. I had a guy one time, and it, we were preaching up in New York, and a guy was preaching up there in front of 4,000 people. And he got off on women wearing slacks, and he called every, uh, and there were women in there that were dressed nice wearing slacks. He called every woman in the church who wore slacks a dirty-legged whore. 4,000 people. He's dead now, by the way. <laughs> Just so you know. 
And then the, the last one that's a big one is prayer. Oh, the great prayer warriors of Christianity. How we fool people. Oh, he's the most godly man. Time and grade. Oh, uh, he, he prays about everything. That's your first sign. He doesn't know anything. When it comes to anybody selling their own spirituality through one of these areas, remember two things, time and grade. If you haven't done anything, I doubt very seriously if you know a whole lot. You know, this is where most young guys get into the ministry when they never should have get in. They're self-called. Never sent out by anybody. In most cases, they can't submit to any authority. You know, in the Bible, just I talk about models and patterns. You know, in the Bible, there's seven models for building a church, that you build your church on those seven models. You actually understand what those models are, why they're there. And then when God calls you to build a church, then you take those seven models and you say, this is the seven models by which I'm going to build my church on, and then you do it. You want to stay biblically? You want to stay as close to the church of Acts as you can? Follow the seven patterns, the seven models. I had a couple of guys over the years that went out of my ministry years ago. And they're they're funny. They're hilarious. Some of you know who they are. uh, Most of you do not. But uh, one of them was a guy that I know now. He pastors the church up here north uh, on the other side of um, Independence up here someplace. And I've known this kid for 40 years. This kid has been in and out of every church all of his life. He could never submit himself to any authority. So you know what a guy like that does? He starts his own church so he can be his own authority. That's what he does. I've known that kid for 35 years. And his hallmark of his whole life as a Christian is the fact that he would never submit to anybody's authority. He always thought he knew better and knew more. And he was in and out of every church, under every pastor, and it just never worked out for him. So finally he goes and starts his own, and then he can set it up and do it the way he wants to do it. I have another guy that uh, I was in my ministry years ago, and he's probably been pastoring a church in Kansas City for 30 years. And this guy thought he, you know, he, both these guys, you couldn't teach them anything. And uh, they are, you know, they, 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 a while back, about, oh, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, he called me and a preacher friend of mine. And he said, I want to take you guys out to lunch. And we said, okay. So we went out to lunch with him. Now he's pastoring the church. He's been pastoring the church for 30 years. And he's probably running 12 to 15 people. At the time we went out to eat, I was running about 250, somewhere in there. And so he brought me and my buddy out. And we sat down to eat there, and he says, I would just like to share with you some things that God has given me that you guys have never taught me and don't know that I might help you in your ministry. He says, I would like to just share with you and give you. And I hate the word share. I ain't sharing nothing with any of you. 
Because share means we're going to do it nice. If I'm going to preach to you, I don't have to be nice. When somebody says, I'd like to share something with you, I always put my hands over my wallet. And he says, I would just like to share with you two guys, you know, what God has given me that he hasn't given you, that uh, maybe you could have, uh, you know, you could really have a, it would help you in your ministry. Now, my buddy was nice. He's kind of a wimpy guy. He was nice. He was professional. He said, well, I, brother, I really appreciate that. And I, you know, I'll take it. I wasn't nice because I'm never nice. Not with guys like that. I said to him, this is amazing. I want everything you got. I'm going to sit here with bated breath and listen to every word you got. And then maybe when it's all said and done and I follow what you did, I can run 13 like you. <laughs> Pharisees. I've been in this business 50 years. I could write volumes and volumes and volumes of what I don't know about building a church. I just got a little thimble full of some key things that have happened to work. They all follow the same pattern. They never do anything. They never give anything. They have all kinds of personal issues, their flesh, their marriage. It's a mess. And yet God calls them to solve all the problems in any church. Time and grade. Now the second group will be older Christians. And they are somebody who got disgruntled about something along the way. You see it in a lot of Baptist churches. They're deacons or this, this, or that. And they're the meanest people on the planet. They quit growing years ago. But they got their little power. There's no joy in their life. They've never won anybody to Christ for years, if ever. And they'll, they'll, they'll play the part of, of a great pattern in the Bible found in 2 Samuel chapter 14 and 15. Uh, uh, that is... Uh, what I call the Absalom at the gate syndrome. Now, one of the greatest studies in the Bible, if you're going to be a pastor, or what these guys will do to you, or try to do to you. Absalom was David's son. David was the king. Let's translate that into spiritual sons, and you're the pastor. And Absalom is rebellious. Absalom, one of the 18 types of the Antichrist in the Old Testament, by the way, but he's, he's envious of his father, David. He wants the kingdom. He thinks God made a terrible mistake. He thinks God got all caught up in what he was doing and put David on the throne by mistake when it should have been him. That's where these guys come from. God did not make a mistake. So Absalom goes down to the gate. In 15.1, and he stands by the gate where people are coming in to see the king. He gets up early in the morning and he has a plan to undermine the ministry of David, his king, his father. And he looks for the people who are coming in who have issues or they're struggling with something. And he goes over to them and he says, you look like you're really troubled today. You look like you're struggling with some things. And he, he pretends like he cares for them. I'm sure he says, I got a little Bible study over my place on, on, on whatever night. And why don't you come over? And they say, and, and, you know, and I, I'm really sympathetic. You know, I know you're going to go see the king, but he's so busy. These little issues, he doesn't care about that. I care about you. I, I, I feel your pain. And, you know, I, I want to help you. Oh, if I were only king, 
If I were only the pastor, oh, I'd solve all your problems. Oh, oh, come unto me, all you that are labor and heavy laden, and I'll give it to you and you don't know where. Oh, if I was just the king, if I were the pastor, if, if, if I could just have the power, and he just, that's what Absalom did. Verse 4 says, he claims to be wise and more spiritual than the king, his own father. And by sowing discord and being dishonest and how he was used of the devil to move the people against God's established structure. Verse 6 of chapter 15 says, And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He wasn't the king. He had no business doing anything. He circumvents the king, traverses the king, cuts his legs out behind him, and thinks he's doing God's work. In my Bible, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, I have a list of 15 men. It's going to be 18. I just haven't got around to putting three more in. I got a list of 15 men that in 45, 47 plus years of my ministry played Absalom in my world. And I think that's pretty good. Not bad in 47 years of ministry, only have 18. But I said the percentage is really low. But they're just like Absalom. And they get busted, they get broken. Their lives fall apart. And uh, 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 this work still goes on. You know why? Because God built this and you're never going to tear it down. I mean, if I build it, then you could tear it down. This thing will stand the test of time because of the fact that I had nothing to do with it. I was just an idiot up here that just did what I was supposed to do. Absalom was a fool. Now, Paul understood this, and he says about this kind of Christian, and he had to deal with them too. He says in Romans 16, 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which ye have heard, and avoid them. Now, that's pretty strong stuff. He says, mark them and avoid them. Paul, talked, uh, Paul follows what Christ did in Matthew 23 with the scribes and the Pharisees when he marked them and then he avoided them. He follows the Old Testament of Elisha in 1 Kings 17, 21 when he's up against the prophets of Baal. He said in 2 Timothy 4, 10, Demas, oh, here's a name, Demas hath forsaken me having loved this present world, called him out for all the Bible, for everybody to read. He named Hymenus and Alexander in 1 Tim, Timothy 1, 19 and 20. He said, they have made the faith in Jesus Christ. These two guys, Hymenius and Alexander, have, here's what he said, have made the faith of Jesus Christ a shipwreck. Whew. Wow. He said, I've delivered them to Satan that they may not learn to blaspheme. Whoa! When Paul had a fellowship, he's mad or what? No, he's just following the Bible. In 2 Timothy 4.14, he said, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. He greatly withstood our words. In 3 John, he, he, uh, John talked about diophathies. And he says, I wrote unto the church, but the Ophethes, who loved to have the preeminence among them, received us not. 
Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, prodding against us with malicious words and not content. Wherewith neither doth he himself receive the brethren, forbidding them that he would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, this fellow not which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil has not seen God. Whoa. Now what do you do with that? Dothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothothoth
Suddenly, the church you had been in for 10 years, the church that your kids got saved in, you got saved in, your kids got baptized in, who taught you the Bible, who gave you the Bible, who was there for you when your brother died, or your sister died, or your mother died, or your father died, or your dog died, or whatever. It was there for everything in your life. A church that has stood for, what, 30, 40, 50, 60 years preaching the truth, suddenly, it's all wrong, and you're right. How insane is that? But that's what a scorner does. You didn't go out. God threw you out. God wouldn't allow you to stay. Oh, Bob Jones Sr. used to say when he used to deal with it all the time. You know what he'd say? His quote was, never cast your pearls before swine. Based on Matthew chapter 7. If I've learned anything in 45 years of pastoring and ministry, I've learned one great truth. Based on what we do with the book... (laughs) After our salvation, God has a plan and a purpose for every one of you. He'll give you a Bible. He'll give you a church. He'll give you a pastor. He'll give you everything you need because he wants you to accomplish what you want to accomplish. But if I learn anything after all those years in the ministry based on what we do with the book, what we do with the people, what we do with the church, what we do with the pastor, what we do with the authorities over us that God gives us, at the end of the day, after salvation, we all get what we deserve. We'll all get exactly what we deserve. You'll never be able to complain, well, I wasn't treated fair at the judgment seat of Christ. God gave you everything you needed. You'll wind up in a wishy-washy church where the guy couldn't preach his way out of a wet paper bag. You'll wind up in a wishy-washy church where nobody will take a stand for anything. That's what you wanted. You got it. Proverbs 22.10 is just as true that's 1 Peter 5, 8, where it says, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. It's just as true as Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's just as true as Philippians 4, 19. My God shall supply all your need. It is a truth of the word of God. Cast out the scorner, and contention will go out. Yea, strife and reproach, south cease. Got nine gates. This church, every Bible-believing church that understands the patterns, should build that wall around nine gates for people to come in and sometimes to go out. You have to have a sheep gate. This church will never be anything if you don't understand the concept of sacrifice. This church has to be have a fish gate. You have to be able to win people to Christ, call them out, get them saved. It has to have an old gate. You have to know where you're at, where you've come from, and who you are. It has to have a valley gate so people that are struggling and hurting in life have a place of compassion that they can get what they need. Oh, it needs to have a fountain gate. A fountain gate where we fellowship with each other, but always around the Word of God and always around the love we have for each other. It has to have a water gate, like today, where the Word of God is preached. The whole counsel of God. Not giving you what I think you want to hear. Not giving you what I think will make you happy. But preaching the truth of the Word of God to you. And let it lay right there. Amen. And it needs to have an eastern gate and a horse gate. Every day of our life, we look for the fact that the Lord might be coming back today. That's the premier thing in our life. The last prayer in your Bible, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Get us out of this mess. And then, praise the Lord, you got a dung gate. Because this body of Christ needs to be able to eliminate the negative things that will try to stop what God has called it to do. You know, as a church, 
the Bible talks about the seven things that they rejoice on in heaven. Up in heaven, they rejoice about seven things. I know we think that they float around in clouds up there. That's not true. The Bible says in heaven, as you come through the Bible, there's seven things that they rejoice about in heaven. And one of the things, believe it or not, one of the things found in, in, uh, in the Bible that they rejoice in heaven is the breakdown and the ultimate destruction of the proud and the wise who scorn. There's no place for them. Because God knows something that none of us really understand. Maybe some of us get a glimpse of it. That God puts a work into progress. That's his plan for this age, just like the nation of Israel was back there. And when the adversaries showed up to stop and weaken the hands, they'll stow up to weaken the hands of the church. It's the church's job following the principles to do exactly what the Bible says when it has to be done. Thankfully, in my ministry, honestly, I don't think... In all my some years in the ministry, I ever had to invoke that verse. And I'm happy about that, because I don't like confrontation. My style of mission, my style of ministry, my style of preaching will always take care of those things. I'd rather do it that way anyhow. Now, you get blamed for it, but that doesn't matter. Because, you know, criticism never bothered me, because at the end of the day, God's keeping the score. And 20 years from now, we'll look at your life, and we'll look at my life, and we'll see how it played out for you. And as Dr. Phil says, how'd that work for you? The end result is this. That's why a church, any church, and they're out there, has to be a strong, not just in believing the Bible, but strong in preaching the Bible. You can't build a church on teaching. You can't build a church on just telling people how nice they are. You've got to be able to preach the word in season, out of season. You've got to be like the Old Testament prophet that when it's wrong and it's sin, you don't sugarcoat it. You don't cover it up. You lay it right across the plate, waist high, where they can swing at it. That's what a church has to be. So you see that verse. And I wouldn't have picked that. If I'd have had my choice, I'd have picked, preached on the love of God this morning. I'd have preached on the rose of Sharon and how you all look like lilies in the valleys. But the verse is what it is. Well, we'll hold up there.